Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless you tonight, and we thank you for um, bringing us back again to uh, the opportunity to study your word and to learn more of you. Um, Lord, we take these studies seriously because um, it is a form of worship to to press into um, your goodness and your mercy via the pages of the written text. We know that your Spirit has preserved the words for us, for our understanding, for our, our um, correction and reproof, reproof and training and righteousness. And for that reason, we um, yield to you, Holy Spirit. We say, um, change us, mold us, shape us, grow us up uh, in the pattern of your dear son, Yeshua. Father, we know that uh, this is your desire um, as we draw close to you through these studies and that they would not be in and of themselves just uh, spiritual, well, intellectual nutrition, but rather spiritual nutrition. I thank you for the opportunity that the students have afforded me to teach again. Uh, I pray that I'll use the time wisely. And I pray that the students will um, gain a more appreci- uh, a better appreciation for uh, the material at hand uh, as we look into the mind of Paul, the mystery apostle. Thank you for the book of Galatians and all that it means to us in the Messianic movement. And it is in the authority of Yeshua that we'll be careful to lift this up to you. Amen. All right, let me turn this down a little bit. I'm, there we go. All right. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman. This is a study on Galatians. It's called Exegeting Galatians. Um, all I, I know you weren't here last semester, uh, but you all were. Um, the book of Galatians is a very interesting book because it continues to be a device that's used to separate the existing church from the emerging Messianic or Torah movement. And it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we are unified when it comes to Messiah on, on, on most parts, but there is a great disagreement when it comes to Torah relevance in the lives of the Christian church versus the Torah movement. Of course, um, Paul gets caught up in the middle of that because he becomes either the champion for the individual who claims that the Lord that the law is no longer relevant, and therefore Paul gives me liberty in Messiah or freedom in Christ, or he becomes the one that explains the right uh, relationship to the Torah. And so, I mean, he, he, I, I, it's Galatians that uh, is kind of the watershed issue. Galatians and Romans, Ephesians gets pulled in there a little bit too. But for the most part, Galatians is one of Paul's earliest works, and um, it was Luther's favorite, uh, it along with Romans. And as Luther looked at the 
existing state church or the Romish church and felt that the legalism that had choked the stranglehold that it had on its adherents um, were in fact described by Paul in his letters and Luther therefore took Paul and and be and and cast him in a way that that spoke liberty for all those who would protest thus the Protestant Reformation all those who would protest against what the um, formalized church was imposing and so luther's paul became for the protestants um really the the uh, model that christianity today or protestantism today still bases their theologies on and interestingly enough in the merging in the newly formed uh messianic movement of which we're a part right the torah communities whatever you want to call us messianic judaism um we seem like Johnny Come Latelys, and yet uh, we enter the scene as these people who are strangely obsessed with putting ourselves back under the law, quote unquote, by our Christian brothers and sisters. So, it beho- it behooves us to study Galatians so that we can understand either a are we going back under the law if such a thing is possible, and and if it is, is it is it a bad thing, or is there something else that needs to be understood from Paul's works? And, and if so, how can we reconcile ourselves to our Christian brothers and sisters who feel that we are dangerously entering into some cultish belief? Is any are you guys kind of identifying with me? Uh, you've gone from church to church, and pretty much when they, I mean, if they see you wearing these, or they find out you're, try, you're attempting to keep some semblance of kosher, or that you observe the, di- uh, the festivals and the Sabbaths and such, then the typical response is, you know, what would you want to do all that for? That's all done away with. And so Galatians becomes a very fun uh, challenge for the Messianic movement. Let me just do some more. Uh, got another people here. David. Okay. All right. Um, for those of you who were here last semester, and as well as for those of you who weren't, I've, I've uh, taken one slice out of the... Um, teachings from last time, and I'll use this to sew last session and this session together. In other words, we're going to do a little bit of review. So, um, what you're going to need for this class, thank you. We'll just keep doing that. <laughs> they're coming. They're, they're, there's, you know how it is. Slow start. Thanks, Mike. Did everyone get one? Great, we'll get more. Um, what you're going to need for this class, whether you're taking it for LTS or not, is um, just bring a three-hole binder notebook um, because I've got notes. The, the majority of the notes are available on the website, craftingin.com. Click on commentaries, click on more lessons, and then it's probably halfway down the list. Exegeting Galatians. It's about 50 pages long at the moment. Um, that will be the written notes. I will make audio versions every week, just like I'm doing now. Uh, those will not be placed on the web. You'll have to get with me to get those. I will compile all the audio into one CD. There'll be MP3s or something like that. Um, and then I'll give that to you at the end of the whole study itself. Um, those of you who attended last semester got the 10 or 11 sessions on one CD there as well. Those of you who didn't, I can get make that available for you. Um, you know, free of charge. So that way that uh, you can kind of catch up if you'd like. Um, also, those of you who are taking this for credits that you've paid and such like that, you know who you are. Um, I'll do a little more homework this time than I did last time, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, I have a first homework assignment for you. I'll just tell you what it is. I didn't, I didn't write it out for you, but I'll just tell you what it is. Use the same guidelines that you've used for 
LTS homework assignments, you know, the, the double space, the Times New Roman, the 12 point, all that stuff. Uh, the homework assignment is simply, how are you doing since the time we met last and now? How are you? It's an easy 100, I promise. I have to just do the homework. How are you? When, I mean, you know, where... I don't. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to dig pry into your life. I just want to try and connect with my students. That's all. Um, you know, was the break good? Was it bad? You don't even have to talk about Galatians. I just want to know how you are. All right. I mean, I want you to know that as a teacher, I'm interested in how you guys are doing. Um, you're welcome to ask me how I'm doing too. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to get you to do it on paper for me. So I'm not going to share it with anyone else. And and this is just for me. But it's an easy 100. But just to start off the class right with. Uh, uh, you know, it'll give me something to pray for as well. Okay, and I hope you're praying for me as we go through the, go through these studies. The spiritual warfare involved in teaching the Torah communities is immense, and I'm, I'm probably not even aware of half of what's going on in the background of those who are praying for me. So, yes. No, um, I said it's an easy 100, easy easy 100 grade. All you have to do is just turn it in. I think the limit is what 300 to 600. It has to be at least 300, but no more than 600. So that's it. Easy, easy first 100. Start off the gate. Everyone starts out strong. Um, so that's how it works. See, the people are streaming in. Tell me your name again. I forgot. Jamie. And how do I spell it? J-A-M-I-E. The first initial of your last name again? Yes. Okay. And I'll write them in later. And David P. There we go. All right. Um, can you hand that back to Jamie? What we're doing is we are just doing a review of last semester. Um, this portion, if you noticed, if you look at it, if you look down at the bottom, it's page number 10. That's because it is part of the larger work. I just lifted it straight out of the other commentary. And I chose this one because it seems to succinctly capture the idea that I'm going to try and convey in this class. Let me first paint for you a caricature of what I understand, and I think you all will agree with me. But let me paint a caricature of what the standard Christian understanding or approach to Galatians is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw it in caricature form. More or less, as I understand the church's view of Galatians, they feel that Paul had to combat an issue that arose in the first century after Yeshua left and rose and went away in the uh, uh, book and the, the the events of Acts that opened up and things like that. Um, you of course have a Jewish community and a non-Jewish community coming together like never before, and so in this milieu of Jews and non-Jews coming together, the Jewish people are used to keeping the law, observing Torah, Shomer Mitzvot. They are keeping the commands because that's what God told them to do. Hero Israel, you know the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And these words which I'm commanding today, what words? The words of the covenant. So Israel has been instructed in keeping the law. Non-Israel, that is to say, the the Gentiles have not been instructed in keeping the law. But now that Christ has come, a new era has dawned, or a new dispensation, if I want to use that term. And this new dispensation is a dispensation of grace, not law. Therefore, in this new dispensation, the law has been suppressed or done away with, or whatever you want to call it. It's no longer relevant in the life of a follower of Jesus, of Yeshua. And especially for the new believers, the new Gentiles. It's, a little, it's still questionable as to how the Jewish people are to approach the law, I'm still speaking as if I'm normative Christianity. Um, it's still questionable as to whether or not the Christians uh, or the Jews have to keep the law, but certainly the Christians don't. And so 
because it is such a hard um, concept to to imagine that God would lighten the load and take the law away from us, um, Paul has and Paul himself would not have gotten this revelation unless Jesus Yeshua revealed it to him personally. But after his eyes were opened, he realized that the law is is a burden and it and it should be cast off, and therefore the liberty that we have in Christ is to be. A, a life of of grace led living where we 're no longer bound by Sabbath, um, a new day is going to emerge Sunday is going to 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 come into view. Um, we no longer have to be bound to the restrictions of what to eat and what not to eat anything everything 's been cleansed now it 's all been made clean in, in Yeshua. Um, the festivals are suppressed because they all pointed towards Yeshua anyway. Uh, and therefore, now that Yeshua has come, they've been fulfilled. Um, in a word, Jesus fulfilled the law, so we no longer have to do it. Um, and so Paul comes along, and he goes through great pains to explain both to the existing Jewish community as well as the newly emerged Christian community that the law is done away with. We're no longer under the law. We're 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 under grace. Um, we're dead to the law. I'm I'm using near quotes from Paul out of Romans and Galatians. You guys are getting the idea, right? All right, this is the view of the church uh, since more or less third and fourth centuries. Some put as early as the first century with with uh, uh, um, uh, Ignatius and uh, uh, Marcion and, and guys like that. But um, pretty much it was formalized in the fourth century, third and fourth centuries, things like that. And so this becomes the letter, Galatians, for the Christians to point that Paul uses phrases such as, you know, we're no longer under the law, um, we're, I died to the law. Uh, we know that a man is not justified by the law. And in the caricature that I'm painting here, the church sees the existing Judaisms of the first century as a religion that is driven by deed. A religion that is driven by works. And Paul even uses the phrase works of law. We can read it, works of law. And so the church sees the Judaisms of the first century characterized by a works driven righteousness and in this works driven righteousness which is carefully labeled legalism today the the jewish person of the first century strove to keep the law of god to be counted righteous and in doing so when i say righteous i mean like salvation based righteous or salvific righteousness um in his striving to keep the law of god so that he could be saved um he he finds disappointingly that he cannot keep all the law and therefore he's cursed and therefore he cries out in desperation for God to liberate him and to free him and to save him and God sends his son into his life into the Jewish person's life frees him and then the the Jew does an about face and looks back at his old life and realizes gosh that's it It, it, the law couldn't save me I just I, I don't know why I was trying in the first place now I can walk in freedom and you guys are getting the idea right okay um so uh that is more or less the, the, the picture that is painted by the discussion of Galatians and Romans. What's your first name again? Donna, D-O-N-N-A. And the first initial of your last name? W, okay. I'll get your last name after class, after I turn the recording off. Um, can you hand that back to her? All right. Has my, has my picture been painted fairly accurately? Is that pretty much what the church is teaching today? Did I leave anything out? I know there's some minor details, but is that the gist of it? Yeah? Okay. It's, it's, to be sure, if that were not the viewpoint of the church today, then we in the Torah community, the Messianic community, who are returning to our Hebraic roots, when we interact with our Christian counterparts who hold the view that I just described, there is friction, yes? 
especially again over you know discussion of these and the dietary and the Sabbath and and and, and there's usually very little discussion over the deity of Yeshua or something like that or or over the, the the effect of his sacrifice it's usually over what they might call the ceremonial issues of the law things like that right right okay so um hopefully our study on Galatians will help answer some of those questions what i'm going to do for you now as i read down to the paper is help to paint what i believe is a more accurate view of the first century judaisms and the social situation facing the two peoples there and in repainting the picture and i'm going to use history extant writings, uh, rabbinic writings, um, careful exegesis of the passage, careful collaboration and corroboration between um, uh, the different texts that Paul uses, and obviously the bulk of the Tanakh itself, the Old Testament, and we'll hopefully paint a a more accurate view of the first century Judaisms and the Torah communities that were emerging. And what we'll hopefully come to an understanding of is that A, the caricature that is painted by the Christian church of the Judaisms of the first century is entirely inaccurate, um, in that the Judaisms saw themselves simplistically as keeping the law so that they could be saved. Another thing that will end up happening is their view, the Christian's view, of the Torah should change as we make these discussions. So, let's look at the paper and then I'll just go through it. This class is an hour long, it's about 7.15 roughly, and we'll stop at 7.50. Okay, I'll try to stop like five minutes short so that we can do a little bit of Q&A. And then next week I'll just keep bringing you paper after paper and we'll just keep going through the discussions. Obviously if you have a question during the discussion, raise your hand and I'll try and field the question. Alright, here we go. The first century situation or social setting of the first century is probably betterly, better described by using this term right at the top of my paper. Covenantal gnomism. Or some have said nomism, but I'm pretty sure it's gnomism. There is a writer by the name of Mark Nanos, who I quoted previously on probably page 9, and that's why I start out with what Nanos and others, you're trying to figure out who Nanos is. Mark Nanos uh, wrote a very, very good set of works on Paul and the first century Judaisms. And what Nanos and other recent scholars, E.P. Sanders, James D.G. Dunn, N.T. Wright, all these guys, what they're describing as pertaining to Paul's first century Judaism and how it reportedly defined itself has been carefully labeled as covenantal gnomism and the little footnote number three there if you jump down if you'll see this first page is more footnote than it is commentary but we have to read the footnotes all right covenantal gnomism let's let's jump down to our uh, footnote first e.p sanders is known for coining the term covenantal gnomism the term is essential to the npp view now npp is simply an abbreviation for new perspective on paul there is a group of authors that have been writing since about the middle, middle to late 70s who have been challenging what we call the Lutheran view of Paul. The Lutheran view of Paul is more or less the caricature that I just described to you. The Lutheran view of Paul is that the Judaism of Paul's day was characterized by this works-based salvation. That's the Lutheran Paul. But the new perspective on Paul is challenging that view of Paul and his Judaism because it doesn't square with some of the other things that the scriptures say, namely what Paul says about himself. Also, it doesn't square with uh, what the rest of the Tanakh says about the covenant that God made with Moshe and with the children of Israel. In other words, if Paul's just coming along saying that the Torah has been done away with, then he is, he is with one stroke of the pen uprooting more or less everything that God established you know, for the last 1,500 years before Paul comes along. Am I, is that right? And who gives, who gives Paul the right to do that? Yeshua? 
that doesn't make sense. So, NPP, New Paul Perspective. Uh, the term is essential to the New Paul Perspective, as Sanders argues that this term or that this is the pattern of religion found in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. The term is used as shorthand, covenant nomism, that is a shortened term used to describe a larger idea. Sanders defines this idea as such. Now, zero in. This is covenantal nomism in a nutshell. Briefly put, covenantal nomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires, as the proper response of man, his obedience to its commandments while providing means of atonement for transgressions. End quote. That's taken from his uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism on page 75. Let me just check this thing. Still looking good, okay. Battery was arguing with me earlier. Okay. This is, and I'll, I'm going to paraphrase that in a little bit, but let me continue with, with the uh, footnote first. This is important because it has huge implications for one's understanding of first century Judaism, and thus for one's interpretation of how Paul interacted um, how Paul interacted with it. If covenantal nomism is true, and, and, and in some schools of thought it's still a, hypoth- a, a, a hypothesis, but if it's true, then when Jews spoke of obeying commandments or when they required strict obedience of themselves and fellow Jews, it was because they were keeping the covenant. It was not out of legalism. Now, let me explain. Bouncing off the Lutheran view of Paul, we contrast that with the new perspective of Paul. The Lutheran view of Paul, if I could just draw it neatly, I guess, the Lutheran view of Paul and the NPP, the Lutheran view of Paul is called legalism, or defined as legalism, as works-based. That is to say, the the would-be covenant member must keep the commandments if he wishes to be considered forensically righteous. Forensic simply means um, what the church would say, justified. Um, if he wants to be justified in the sight of God, viz. saved. If the person wants to be saved in the first century, he had to keep the, keep the Torah. That's a works-based salvation, and it's effectively labeled as legalism. And that's how Luther viewed Paul, and that is the view that's carried down to this day in Protestant circles. But the NPP view says no. What Paul is really understanding is that the law does not save someone. Instead, God in his mercy and grace chooses the individual as a covenant partner with God or a covenant member, effectively saving that individual. And therefore, the responsibility of the individual to God is not keeping the Torah to become saved, but keeping the law because he's a covenant member. It's incumbent upon the existing covenant member to uphold the covenant because that's his agreement with God. But the important starting points are different. In Luther's view of Paul, the individual comes to salvation by keeping the Torah. But in the NPP, the individual comes to salvation by God's grace alone. It is diametrically opposed, if you think about it. Now, both views must confront Torah observance. In the Luther's view of Paul, Torah plays the the central first element of bringing the individual into the covenant. But in the NPP, the, the individual is chosen as a covenant member by God, based solely on God's fiat or divine choice, and the individual simply agrees to partner with God to uphold or maintain his covenant membership by keeping the Torah. So, 
here we have it. We would say it's actually grace, and it is um, well works based. It's not works based. It's grace based. And what will we say? Um, uh, um, commandments. Kept uh, because of covenant uh, covenant position, covenant membership. Something like that. I don't have these in my notes. I'm, I'm filling it in for us. All right. Two more people. All right. Two more hungry students. All right. Just tell me your first name and last initial. Greg W. Is that G-R-E-G? Just standard. Okay. And how do I spell Don? Thank you. All right. We're, we are... Oh, I'll get it to him. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. There you are. We're right on the front page. We're, we just finished uh, footnote number three. All right. We are contrasting Lutheran Paul with the new Paul position. Or the new uh, perspective on Paul, NPP. All right. Um, so, again, Luther's Paul. Legalism is defined as works-based salvation. New perspective on Paul. It's grace-based. God does the choosing. God does the saving. And commandments are kept because of covenant membership. That is to say, we don't keep the Torah to become saved. We keep the Torah because we're saved. Big difference. What it does is it exonerates the Judaisms of the first century if we change our viewpoints. If the church had this view of the first century Judaism, they would not see Paul as telling the existing communities to stop keeping Torah. They would not see legalism in the same view. Now, I'm not saying that NPP doesn't have its holes. As we're going to see, there are some issues here, and we're going to talk about those. But this is the broad view so far. All right. Indeed, a new perspective on Paul, I'm at the top of the page just after the footnote number three. Indeed, a new perspective on Paul, NPP, is on the rise. Now, footnote number four, drop down to number four, the little one. We're still on the first page right there. The new perspective on Paul, also called new perspectivism, hereafter NPP, is a system of thought in New Testament scholarship that seeks to reinterpret the Apostle Paul in his letters. In brief, the NPP is a reaction to the Lutheran Paul, in essence, the traditional interpretation of him. Proponents of the Lutheran Paul understand him to be arguing against a legalistic Jewish culture that seeks to earn their salvation through works. That's exactly what I just said. However, supporters of the NPP argue that Paul has been misread, and we do too. Don't we? In a sense, we're already finding ourselves in this camp before we even knew it. By virtue of answering the Spirit's tug on our heart to return to God's ways and to walk in, in, in covenant faithfulness, we're already switching camps, even though we weren't labeled. We've just been labeled now. I just thought I'd let you know. So, uh, keep reading here. He was actually combating Jews who were boasting because they were God's people, the elect or the chosen ones. Their works, so to speak... Because Paul does do that phrase, works. The Greek word is aragon. Um, their works, so to speak, were done to show that they were God's covenant people and not to earn their salvation. 
The result is a Judaism that supposedly affirmed solo gratia. And you have to jump down to the bottom of the page to see where the footnote continues. Solo gratia means grace alone. Presently, its effects are seen in the academic world of New Testament scholars, particularly those who focus their attention on Pauline studies and the study of first century Judaism. All right, now... um, Go back up to the page 10 so we can just finish there. We're right after the footnote number 4. Again, the, uh, the, the footnote there explains what I just explained here, the category Lutheran view, the category NPP view. Let's keep going. What is covenantal nomism? Because more or less, if we can wrap our mind around covenantal nomism, we'll have a better understanding of, of in my opinion, Paul. Theopedia.com uh, provides a brief description for us to examine. I pull some of these quotes from online because anybody can grab them. Here is their quote. And the quote starts, I apologize for the way it looks, the, the quote starts actually on the top of page 11. This is what happens when your footnotes get so big that your paper doesn't, I think about sometimes making the end notes instead, and that way they, they won't interfere. All right, starting at the top of page 11, this is Theopedia's quote. Covenantal nomism is the belief that first century Palestinian Jews did not believe in works righteousness. Right up front, Theopedia explains that the Lutheran view of Paul is not what the NPP believes. And they affirm, albeit hypothetically, they affirm that neither did the first century Jews carry this simplistic ladder to heaven view. So, covenantal nomism, the belief that first century Palestinian Jews did not believe in works righteousness. Essentially, it is the belief that one is brought into the Abrahamic covenant through birth, and one stays in the covenant through works. It suggests that the Jewish view of relationship with God is that keeping the law is based only on a prior understanding of relationship with God. Again, let me just state it this way. I've stated this in my commentaries, and it seems to work. We don't keep Torah to become saved. We keep Torah because we're saved. All right? And that's more or less covenantal nomism. That's, how, that's what I'm saying. Now, again, I've got a footnote uh, and the footnote this time is just the uh, the link to Theopedia down there at the very, very bottom if you want to go look that up for yourselves and read the entire article. This is my own, now going back to my own commentary. Quoting from Sanders and Wright, now again, E.P. Sanders has, is the one who provided the seminal work on covenantal nomism and is the uh, uh, father of the term covenantal nomism. He wrote that book, by the way, in the late 70s, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Quoting from Sanders and Wright, in the same article, they go on to include a brief discussion about the problems with the traditional Lutheran view of Paul and suggest that the new perspective on Paul actually exonerates first century Judaism from the centuries-long charge of being a works-based religion. And then here we go. I'll quote the article again. At least I think that's Theopedia. Yeah, it is. All right, quote. Here's Theopedia again. A fundamental premise of the NPP is that Judaism was actually a religion of grace. Now, if I just pause right there, that statement alone is a shocker to most Christians today. Judaism is religion of grace. They're not convinced. Part of the reason is twofold. One, because Luther has already given us the view of Judaism in his mind, and the Judaism of, of Luther's view is not grace, it's legalism. But the other reason is because the Judaisms of today have unwittingly fallen into the trap described by Luther. Many Jewish people today feel that in order to get God's attention, I must keep the commandments endlessly. And so they are, in effect, in, a, in essence, walking into, this, into these footsteps. But that's not to say that the first century Judaisms did. 
In fact, rabbinic Judaism was created in the second century, or uh, two, around 200 CE at Yavne after the temple was sacked and they reconvened. The rabbis kind of got together, and Judah the prince, he's, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, a uh, uh, rabbi said, um, "Gosh, we, you know, if we don't start doing something with our religion, we're going to die out." And so they just more or less reinvented Judaism. Voila, rabbinic Judaism is born. And since then, they've kind of gone a different direction than biblical Judaism started. So you could say that we had this path of being walked by biblical Judaism. And then in the first century, um, the, the first century communities, of which the book of Acts describes, also kept stride with biblical Judaism. But then after the temple was destroyed in 200 CE, there was a break, a split. We had rabbinic Judaism going off in one direction and the Christian church going off in a direct, different direction. And both groups have departed from true biblical Judaism or true Hebraic lifestyle. The church has, has departed and so has biblical Judaism. So the Judaisms of today do bear a, f- a resemblance to the Luther's Paul. And so it's no wonder that Christians today look at rabbinic Judaism and cast that uh, uh, die or a or, or, uh, uh, shadow or whatever uh, on top of uh, overlay on top of Luther's Judaism and go, yeah, they look identical. This must be the same. and then they make the, draw the conclusion that this must be what the first century Judaisms are like. Well, that's not that that's a problem. We don't go back far enough in our studies to discover what truly what the first century Judaisms look like. So that's what we're talking about. A fundamental premise of the NPP is that Judaism was actually a religion of grace. Sanders puts it clearly. Here's a quote from Paul in Palestinian Judaism on page 543. Quote. On the point at which many have found the decisive contrast between Paul and Judaism, grace and works, you all have heard that argument for law versus grace. You can do a Google search for that, and they're interesting articles. I mean, they're, they're a dime a dozen, law versus grace. Grace and works. Paul is in agreement with Palestinian Judaism. Salvation is by grace, but judgment is according to works. God saves by grace, but within the framework established by grace, he rewards good deeds and punishes transgression. In other words, we in the Torah communities today affirm that God saves by grace, just like the NPP would argue. But we also don't easily dismiss the role of the Torah because we realize that God judges disobedience. He doesn't just wink at it and smile at it. Now, there is grace in Messiah for when we fail God, when we transgress God. But willful disobedience of God's commands is an invitation for God's punishment or uh, uh, um, correction. <laughs> so, whereas the emerging Christian, I'm sorry, whereas the uh, standard Christian theology would say, Torah bears no relevance in your life at all. It's all grace-based. And I know that's a hype, that statement is hyperbole, but more or less that's the underlying view of how they teach it. Um, we'll talk about how they chop the Torah up into neat little pieces later on. Anyway, N.T. Wright adds that, quote, we have misjudged early Judaism, especially Pharisaism, if we have thought of it as an early version of Pelagianism. Right, what, and, and this is a quote from what St. Paul really said out of Right, page 32. However, Stephen Westerholm adds caution to such a quick-drawn conclusion. And then here's a quote from uh, Westerholm. Quote, While one may enthusiastically endorse the new perspective dictum that first-century Judaism was a religion of grace and acknowledges that it represents as important corrective of earlier caricatures, it is hardly pedantic to point out that more precision is needed before such a statement can illuminate a discussion of the Lutheran Paul. Pelagius and Augustine, or Pelagius I believe it is, uh, to take but the most obvious examples, both believed 
in human independence, I'm sorry, believed in human dependence on divine grace, but they construed that dependency very differently. So it's, it's okay that we, we don't swallow NPP wholesale. There are some issues with NPP that we're going to talk about as well. But there's more issues with this view. So let me just finish out this part, and then I'll, I'll speak freely. I won't even have to look at the paper. Thus, as Westerholm points out, although first-century Judaism may have believed in grace, it becomes even more important to establish why they believed in grace and how this affected their view of salvation. In other words, if the first-century view of uh, the first-century Judaic view of covenant nobism is correct, are we to walk right into that wholesale? Actually, Paul has some problems with what we would call NPP today, um, and and I'm, I'm still holding up. I haven't explained why yet, but I will here in a second. It'll make sense if you're still scratching your head, going, "What? I thought this was right and this was wrong." Well, this is this is a lot wrong, and this is mostly right. Is what I'm trying to say so far. Those from the NPP seem quick to jump to the conclusion that first century Judaism was in agreement with the same understanding of grace found within the NT uh, within the New Testament and Paul's theology. Again, as Westerholm notes above, this grace can be understood very differently, and I'm going to explain it to you in a second, I promise. So, let me let me pause. I'm going to speak freely. I'm not going to read my paper. That little last paragraph, I'm going to read that momentarily, but let me just let me just fill in what the problems with the NTT are. All right. Um, we know that is to say, we can be fairly convinced from Paul's writing, the extant rabbinic writings, the other um, writings of the Bible itself, that Luther's view of Paul doesn't work. That the legalistic view of works-based salvation not only is theologically incorrect, we know that you cannot work your way to heaven. That is true. That's true theologically. The church has a valid point there. That's a theological true argument. But it's not Paul's argument. It's, the ch- it's Luther's argument, and it now becomes the church's argument. But it's not Paul's argument. So as we read Galatians and Romans, it's wrong for us to interpolate or to, to insert something into the passage that was not there to begin with. We must first understand what Paul was, was wrestling with and then launch from that to an application of today. And that's where the church fails. Uh, it's great that they understand that this is a, this is a, a, a true theological argument. And for, and for Luther, great. I think the, the Protestant Reformation was a good move in the right direction to to break from the uh, uh, the, the, the shackles that the, the the universal church had, had bound on its people. So, I mean, I agree with Luther in that respect. You all understand what I'm talking about? All right. Um, but when we look at Paul's Judaisms, the first century Judaisms, what the NPP describes, New Paul Perspective, or what, what uh, where it starts from is this. The first century Jews believed honestly, albeit incorrectly, that they were chosen by God by, on, on virtue of being Jewish alone. God opened the invitation to come into the covenant just because they were Jews, or just because they were born into Israel. So, it's still grace-based, but it's grace-based couched in the requirement that one is a Jew. So now, let me add to this. I'm going to pull out a big meaty term that's not in my paper here, but it's in one of my other papers. Um, Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. That's more or less covenantal gnomism. What this is saying, hold on, I'm sorry, Brad, I didn't get your paper there. 
There you are. Covenant nomism basically teaches what I just wrote up there on the board. I think I invented that term. I'm pretty sure I did. So when I win the Nobel Peace Prize for it or whatever you call it, I, I want full rights for it. No. <laughs> we know that guy. Actually, I, I think I did, but... Um, Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. What I'm trying to explain here is that the first century Jews or Jewish people felt that their position in the covenant was grace-based. That is to say, which one of you controlled how you were born? Which one of you in this room knew before you were born to which family you would be born? Anyone? No. Well, the Jewish people of the first century recognized that as well. And so by virtue of being born into Jewish lineage... That's grace. That is true. There's truth to that. But then they took that so far as to say, because I'm Jewish by ethnicity or by family clan, I am exclusively a covenant member automatically. I'm given covenant membership at birth. So there's nothing I need to do to earn my covenant membership. I get it. It's granted to me at birth. Now, what I'm describing to you is the is the first century view of their covenant position. I'm not saying I agree with it yet. We're going to talk about that in a moment. That's why I said the NPP has its issues. But this is a better view of, the, of Paul's Judaisms, that the first century Jews believed themselves to be covenant mentor, members by virtue of being Jewish alone was their blindness. The blindness is this, as you're figuring out quick, quickly. It is grace that you're born into whatever family lineage that you're born into. But that does not guarantee your covenant membership on a permanent basis. It does grant you covenant membership on a limited basis. God made a covenant. Can I erase this? Or does everyone have this? For the most part. Okay. Because I've got to draw some more. Looking at my time there. Alright. God did make a covenant with Abraham and with his offspring. And the Hebrew word for offspring is zarah. Uh, the Greek word is sperma. It means seed. Alright. So... It is physical. It has a physicality to it. It's not just spiritual, like the church might say, we're all God's, we're all Abraham's children by virtue of being Messiah. Yeah, that's true, but God makes a promise to Abraham's physical offspring. And in that physical um, offspring, or that promise, so we have um, a covenant. (laughs) Covenant. There we go. We have a covenant, but there are two levels to the covenant. There is what we might call the... I'm going to use the word temporal. And then there's the eternal. On the temporal side of the covenant, you are born into that if you are seed of Abraham. Temporally, you're born into that because from birth, there's no guarantee that you have faith in God, per se. Um, you're Just by virtue of falling under the covenant made with Abraham, you fall into the temporal covenant boundaries. And there are provisions and stipulations for you as a covenant member. But you must, according to the Torah, graduate or matriculate to faith in God, which today is read as faith in Messiah, right? You must, at some point in time, place your faith in the covenant giver, or else the covenant giver has every right to excise and remove you from even the temporal covenant, certainly the eternal. But, in other words, if you are born, live, and die hating God, doesn't matter if you were Jew or not, you're not making it into the eternal part of God's covenant. If you're, as you're figuring out, the eternal aspect of this covenant that God made with them is what we would call today in church parlance heaven, but in Jewish terminology, they'd simply say the olam haba, the age to come. Uh, 
a place in the age to come. Who doesn't understand what I mean there? Everyone does. Great. Um, so when we say eternal, we mean like uh, after you after. Obviously, this is like the 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 um, uh, divider between earth and 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 uh, you know death. So temporally, you can you're born into the covenant, but that doesn't guarantee your place eternally. But what happens when the covenant member on the temporal level matriculates to faith in God? They graduate to belief in God, genuine faith in God, like Moshe or like David. And in this belief in God, they recognize the Messiah promised within the scriptures. We could say, using church parlance, they become saved or they are regenerated. They're no longer dead. They're alive in Messiah. They're alive in God. doesn't matter which age you lived in. Dispensationalism is bogus in that sense. All men place their faith objectively in Messiah, whether he was the Messiah to come or the Messiah who came. doesn't matter which is equal to faith in God. But the point is they became saved. And once they became saved, they inherited the covenant on the eternal level as well. So now they have both. They have temporal blessings and eternal blessings. The temporal blessings are what? All kinds of things that the Torah promises. You know, offspring good, good crops, good health, uh, all those types of things that the Torah promises if you walk in the Torah. Walk in the Torah, temporal blessings are promised. Have faith in God, eternal blessings are promised. You get it now, you get it later as well. This is the best package. This is the full meal deal right here. God, this is what God envisioned for every covenant member. Temporal as well as eternal. Not this or that, but this and that. They don't compete. They complement one another, right? This and that work together. You get, in other words, you could say God, God envisioned for every covenant member of, of Abraham's offspring. Of course, we know everyone didn't catch it, but God envisioned heaven on earth and heaven in the age to come. Yeah, sounds good. But unfortunately, most people find themselves in this category and fail to graduate to this category, and therefore eventually they just get cut off, or they die and they don't inherit anything. They die and go to hell is what happens, to use church parlance. So here's where the blindness of the first century Judaism was. Gosh, is it really 40 after? Yeah. Here's where the blindness of the first century Judaism lies. The first century Judaisms were blinded to the fact that one gained this only by faith. Instead, they got the part right that they were born into the covenant, but they they just they felt that this was also granted automatically with this. In other words, they believed in what we might call today um, corporate righteousness instead of individual righteousness. And I'm using the word righteousness in a salvific way. Well, we're Jews. We're saved. This is what I mean when I say saved. This marker smells wonderful. I just thought I'd let you guys know. It's blueberry. It's scented. I'm getting high up here. All right. Eternal. Saved. Um, they believed in a corporate righteousness. And that's where Paul's eyes were open to the truth. When he met Yeshua on the road to Damascus, Yeshua revealed to him for the first time that one is not automatically saved just because he's a covenant member. One has to place his personal faith in God before God will grant him eternal covenant benefits. And so Paul then goes on a mission to teach his fellow Jewish brothers that just because you're Jews, you're not automatically in the eternal part of the covenant. Yeah, you got the temporal one, but that's great. But what good is that if you're going to die and, 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 and you don't get anything in the age to come? In other words, you're, you're cut off. You don't, there's, no, um, there's no retirement package. This is the retirement package because the Olam Haba promised 
all sorts of goodies that the church seems to ignore today. But um, Paul had to go on this mission to explain that to his Jewish brothers. But at the same time, he had to explain to the newly formed Gentile communities this same phenomenon. And the reason why he had to do that is, and I'll go, I'll go back now down to my paper, see if this makes sense. Look down at the paper on page 12, the last paragraph. I understand that the prevailing Judaisms that existed in the first century initially upset the biblical balance by teaching that circumcision was the vehicle by which a non-Jew could and must enter the covenant made with Israel. Shame on them. To be sure, a whole theological council was formed to deal with the problem in the first century, both in Acts 15, verses 1-35, through 35, as well as Acts 21, verses 17-26. through 26. The, the uh, Yerushalayim council had to address the issue of, quote, returning to the works of the law, as opposed to, quote, living in the freedom of Messiah. And what is the meaning of works of the law? That's where we're going to um, do our uh, a little bit of study next week, and then we'll be able to talk more about the Torah. But what does works of the law mean? Surely it does not refer to correct and true faith-driven observance of written commands. That's not what works of the law means. Although, if you ask your average Christian today, what does works of the law mean in Paul's writings, how will they respond? Keeping the law is works of the law. In other words, if I were to ask you, you can answer truthfully or you don't have to, but, but, but play along with me anyway. Do you wear a seat seat? I mean, I know he does because I'm seeing him wear them. Yes. You can say yes, yeah. You wear a seat seat. Do you keep the Sabbath? Do you keep the festivals? Do you try to keep kosher? Well, then you're doing the works of the law. And Paul clearly tells me that we're not under the works of the law. We're under grace. So what I've done is just described a common confrontation between an average Christian and a Torah-observant individual. And in this confrontation... Because Paul describes works of law as bad, whatever works of law is, it's bad, and grace is good, because I perceive that you doing those things is works of law, therefore you are doing some bad things. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you say you believe in Jesus or not. You're going back under the law, buddy. And Paul says we're not under the law. The problem is works of law doesn't mean that. <laughs> so if we, if we can redefine those terms, then we can better understand Paul. Surely it does not refer to correct and, faith dr- and true faith-driven observance of written commands. No. What this technical phrase is referring to, listen up, is a set of halakhic rules that an individual must ally himself with in order to be received into a specific and exclusive community. Exclusive community. More on works of law below. And of course you have to wait till next week to find out. So, in my closing comments, just let me briefly say this way. When Paul was, was charting his way through the problems of the first century, he had his work cut out for him. Not only did he have to swim up against 1,500 years of Jewish tradition, he had to explain now this to the newly formed communities in a way that they could understand because they weren't schooled in Torah to begin with. So he had both sides to wrestle with. And that's where we're going to pick up Paul in the book of Galatians. We're actually going to start in Galatians chapter 3 because we made our way all the way through Galatians 2. If you need to get the audio notes from last semester, uh, let me know. In fact, just by a show of hands, since I've got everybody here now. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Yeah. By show of hands, who needs the notes from last week? Or not last week, last semester. Who needs the audio versions? No one? Everyone's got them. Anyone need the written notes? They're on the website. You get them off the website. Okay, and you'll get this paper too again. So, again, you don't need the audio. Everybody's got the audio? No one needs it? You'll take an audio. Okay, let me mark you down for an audio. Okay. 
it's just one CD with 10 MP3s. Um, they're about 40 minutes each. And they're, they're just what I'm recording right here. So, All right. So that being said, we're going to talk about Paul. We're going to talk about his idioms. We're going to talk about his view of Torah. Last semester, we focused more on the identity issue. The identity issue is, is this whole covenant membership definition. What defines a covenant member? And when I say a covenant member, I mean a true and lasting covenant member. For what good is covenant membership if it all ends when you die? God's in for the full package. He's in for your soul. Yeah, and now I'm speaking Christianese. God wants your soul. He wants to see you in heaven. He really does. And so God designed for you to become a lasting covenant member by placing your faith in Yeshua, his only son. He wants to give you temporal blessings. He wants to give you blessings now and blessings in the age to come. He's in for, out for the full deal. So the first century question is what defines covenant membership? How do I get in is the question that is asked by Paul. And again, the church views it as I get in by keeping the law. But that's not what Paul taught. That's not what the first century Judaism's taught. That's not what anybody believes, really. What they believed was I'm in because I'm Jewish. And therefore, the, the problem in the first century is not really the Torah from a Jewish perspective. The problem is the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's the problem. That becomes the issue. So I'll stop there. I've got maybe like two minutes before Mark pokes his head in there and tells me, got five minutes. Any questions or comments so far at this point? I can promise you this, since I don't see anyone raising their hand, I can promise you this. The view that we're presenting in this class is not well received in Christian circles. It really isn't. It is very much impossible for many Christians, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on Christians. I'm picking on a view or an ideal, and Christians have rallied themselves around the ideal, so if I can destroy the ideal, maybe the Christians will see. But they find it nearly impossible to think outside this box of Lutheran's Paul. Keeping the law for... for no, I, no. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, even the best theologians are just stumped when it comes to understanding Paul this way. So why we've caught it, I don't know. Why has the Spirit of God revealed it to us? I haven't a clue. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like you. I'm just a student who's, will, who's eager to learn and you know, hungry to, and, and willing to put aside my preconceived notions to figure out what the truth is. But I don't know. I, I don't know. There are people far bigger degrees than I have than, that I still can't figure it out. So, Any other questions before I... Yes? Really? Okay. Well, good. If Mark pokes his head in there... Okay, let me do this real quick then. Let me stop the thing so I can write down your names. That will do. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, 
It is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>